I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. It's great to be back with a new episode. For this week's conversation, I'll be switching roles to give an update on my farm and fiber practice. I have the pleasure of being interviewed by Michelle Brooks of The Stitchering Shop. You may remember Michelle from episode 110, where we talked about her practice creating custom textile art pieces using a variety of fiber-making techniques such as tufting, embroidery, stitching, and weaving. Michelle is currently trying to get back to the land with hopes to learn more about sheep farming and spinning and dyeing practices. And we had such a great conversation catching up, as well as comparing some of our experiences as fiber artists, and I'm excited to share this episode with you all. Hello, LaShawn. Hi. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. No complaints. That's good. Good to hear. I'm very excited to continue this contextualizing textiles conversation. I know it's been a little while since the second iteration of the series, so I did hope that you're all right with kind of recapping your fiber art journey, both for me and for folks listening who might not have either caught the first two episodes or it's been a little while. Um, And I'm ultimately interested in what led you to exploring farming practices in a more in-depth and intentional way. And if this was something that began either during or as a result of your time at Parsons. I know we're kind of diving right in, but how does that sound? Yeah, I mean, that's the best place to start. I feel like as time has progressed, my sort of, I guess, origin story has evolved because I feel like the more that I've done the work, the more things have become more apparent to me. Things have started to stick out in my journey. Um, Even like if I were to talk about this moment right now, uh, which I know we're going to get into a little bit later, I just moved back to South Carolina And I'm in Charleston, which Charleston is kind of the area where the plants that I've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast originated and the culture of people that I've been interested in researching come from. And to be here now and to think about those early years really kind of puts a lot of things into perspective for me. I always tell people that this journey was very intuitive. I kind of just was very curious in the beginning and kept following my curiosity. So when I went to Parsons, I was interested in studying design. My first application was to apply for the fashion program. And I had missed the application deadline by... I think a week and I didn't know that they didn't have, I think it's called rolling admissions. Yeah. So I had to go to the office and I was almost like going there with tears in my eyes, almost begging, like, please. I, (laughs) I worked on my application. I want to go in and I was talking to the person and they said, you know, it sounds like you'd be interested in integrated design. And I was like, what is that? And then I looked up the alumni page and the work that they were doing. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. And this is exactly what I want to be. 
And I remember previously my roommate telling me about the program when I would describe to her what I wanted to do. She would say, you should look into integrated design. You should look into integrated design. And I would kind of write it off because I was like, no, I want to study fashion. And I ended up applying to that program and I got in and the basis of that program as I have come to understand it is you have a goal and you learn a series of skills that help you to get there. And so it's a program that requires you to, at a really basic level, kind of know what you want and also decide the things that you want to get out of it. And that's how this whole journey really began. Like first it was a dream or a concept. It was like, Cotton is this fiber, it's this cultural, it's a, it, it is something that exists within Black American culture that carries stigmas, that carries weight, that carries history, that carries meaning. It's a very, very weighted fiber, very weighted material, and it also acts as a euphemism. It's off also in so many sayings, you know, like it's, it's a lot of times you'll hear people say things like, um, oh, I'm not going back to the cotton field or we're not in the cotton field anymore. You know, like it mm-hmm. has so many meanings and it means so many things. And so it started out as just me thinking about it and thinking about it. And as it transitioned from a concept to a reality of something to pursue, it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And so by the time I was in classes and I was learning about natural dyes and hand spinning and hand weaving and um, zero waste garment construction, I was really becoming curious about placing all of these things into a cultural narrative, placing all of these things into my personal narrative. What does indigo dye mean to me as a Black American woman? What does cotton mean to me as a Black American woman? What does sourcing cotton and indigo in the U.S. mean to me as a Black American woman? What does it mean to me sourcing it from India? What does it mean sourcing it from Guatemala or, you know, another Latin American country or an indigenous group? I had all of these questions, but I felt like I wasn't finding answers in class. I couldn't particularly relate to my classmates or my professors. More often than not, I was the only black person in class. Or if I wasn't the only black person, I was the only black American person, meaning that um, there were, you know, I had friends who were Nigerian. I had friends who were Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latin. Um, and we can come together and understand each other on a lot of things, but there are also a lot of cultural differences, especially when it pertains to fibers and fiber production within the U.S. And um, that is where contextualizing textiles comes from. Contextualizing these textiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I am curious if you were outside of the fiber program at all. I know that that is um, just focus, obviously, and I know it's your focus, but uh, it is an expensive medium, too. I feel like there there is sort of a 
kind of a high barrier for entry, so to speak. I mean, looms are really expensive. If you're getting natural fiber, that's really expensive. So I wonder, uh, I'm curious how much of that kind of otherness that you were feeling as the only black American woman is department-based perhaps, or is it just Parsons in general? I know that's an expensive school as well. Do you, are you open to talking about that a little bit? Have you thought about that in terms of how that also, I mean, you were drawn to this practice for a reason as well, but I feel like there's, there's a lot of complexity with fiber, even kind of on a basic level, I would say. Yeah. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, <laughs> um, I transferred into Parsons from another school. So I started at Parsons as a sophomore. Okay. Um, so I didn't do foundation year and I studied at two schools before I got to Parsons. And what I gathered from the, the two schools that I went to previously was that I wasn't going to get what I needed to get to the places I needed to get to in order to get to my end goal. So my decision to go to Parsons was strategic. And I was also a little bit more mature because I wasn't going fresh out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understood walking into it. I'm going into this space. I'm probably going to feel like an outsider. I'm probably going to feel uncomfortable at moments. Um, it is very expensive. And that's why, um, I was saying before that I was very strategic about going there and getting what I needed out of the program. I mean, the, the best way I could describe the financial aspect of everything is, is really finesse. Like <laughs> I finessed my way through school, um, as far as like finding materials and using materials and being able to afford the program. I mean, while I was in school, one of the things that you need just to start is a MacBook. And I didn't get my first MacBook until after graduation. So I was, you know, going to school to get my projects done. Um, and fabric, I would just make use of fabrics that were available. A lot of the materials that I used during thesis or for my projects were recycled materials, or I would work in muslin. I would dye with muslin. I would use bed sheets. Like I, I would do so many things. And it's kind of funny because I say that and then some people would think, oh, this is sustainable. But this is kind of that moment where sustainability and like context kind of come together where it's like, yes, it was sustainable, but also it was resourcefulness. This was me doing what I had to do to get the things that I needed to get done. Um, And that's another thing also, too, I think that really made me start to think about contextualizing a lot of the things that I was learning in a way that made sense for me and people like me because sustainability in the marketable sense, in the way that it is, I don't want to say greenwashing. I mean, greenwashing absolutely is exists and that is another conversation. But it's like when people think of sustainability, they think of, neutrals and browns and green and no plastic and there's a look of sustainability and there's a part of that 
that needs to be anchored in social sustainability and equity as well. And so there's a barrier of sustainability when it comes to the price point of a lot of things. And so this is something too that I've also, you know, had to investigate to try and figure out how all of these things work. And I haven't gotten to the space where I feel like I'm comfortable and I understand uh, exactly how to articulate what I mean. I don't, I don't know if that's making sense, you know, where I'm going with this. No, definitely. I feel like um, it sounds like it's more of a necessity or it was more of a necessity, especially when you were in school than like the cool thing to do. <laughs> it, it was, right. You know, like it, it I feel like, uh, I'm sure it influenced your practice, but it also, I, I imagine, probably constrained it in some ways because you, you could only use what you could find, or that was the main goal to keep things uh, affordable. I I feel the same way. I'm always going to our, um, we have a place called the Waste Shed in Chicago where people will actually donate uh, art supplies and oftentimes I'll donate just kind of pounds of fiber too mm. which is great but you know you, they may not have the colors you want they may not have exactly I'm always looking for alpaca yarn <laughs> they may not have alpaca yarn you just have to kind of use what they have if you want to I mean I'm I really try not to buy anything new especially in in a, a big box store that is doing who knows what with their dye practices, etc. I feel like um, I know even vintage yarn, they might be doing things that are a little questionable, but oftentimes you will find things that are more organically sourced if it's not just this big box thing that you're trying to get multiple skeins of. Um, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a ramble. I could talk about yarn no, all day. It's so true. It's yeah. so true because I think sustainability is so much deeper than what a lot of sustainable initiatives and movements will have you believing it is. Like it's yeah. so much deeper. And and also like what is the practicality of the sustainable of sustainability in the way that they are putting it out like like where's the practical nature like like what is how do we actually enact this and how, and is it inclusive and also what is the language we're using and that's something that I didn't have back then or even like maybe four or five years ago I had to find myself in this space because when I graduated I was kind of into that you know like when I graduated, I was kind of conditioned into thinking that way. And once I was outside of that environment and in spaces that were familiar to me, I had to reel back a bit and really have a lot of questions. It was almost like I had to, it was like a code switch almost. Like it was like, okay, I learned this and I was around this and in a way it, it's like a box, you know, thinking within this box and these parameters and you get used to it. But then when you get out of that box and you get into the real world or your personal reality, it's a little different. And that's kind of why I've stepped away from or you won't see me speaking specifically about sustainability in that way. 
Um, I try to be neutral because I realize that sustainability also has to be sustainable. And what is sustainable for me might not be sustainable for another person. And I think that a lot of times when we get caught up in infographics and, you know, all of these different things that are out there that raise awareness, you know, advocacy, um, I think that it can be a deterrent. It can alienate people. Like I remember one time having a conversation with a good friend who works in food justice and like food sovereignty. And they were saying like, we need to take the word clean eating out of food because it implies that people who don't eat this particular way are eating dirty and people are eating what they can eat. People are eating what they can afford. And I don't think people realize how much, and, and it's unfortunate, you know, in this country, you know, this country that is America, it's unfortunate <laughs> that organic fresh fruits and vegetables are a privilege. It's unfortunate. Um, but that's a reality. And so I'm still trying to figure that part out and also how that translates into fibers and textiles. You know, it's like, I don't want to demonize people who, support fast fashion because they don't have options yeah i feel like it it's always a journey (laughs) i'm um i'm curious too i know after parsons you eventually you did have land in low country south carolina that i don't know if that was right after you graduated or if you could kind of explain how that came to be and then i'm curious what happened to those crops that you had started growing I believe it was indigo and were you growing cotton as well? Yes. Yeah. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So after graduation, so also going back just to kind of make sure that everything makes sense because um, it's kind of, it, it can seem like jumps if I don't connect everything. But while I was in school, my senior year, I actually ended up having to work full time because um, I had issues with like financial aid and things. And so my full-time job was working at a farmer's market. And the farmer's market, if anyone's familiar with New York City farmer's market, I worked at the Union Square Green Market. I was a market manager. And I volunteered with them for years in their Stop and Swabs, which is a program where people would take their clothes and their house housewares and then donate them and then people would go and take what they needed for free and it was a good event it was good energy it was good people and someone had mentioned to me you should apply to be a market manager so I applied and so I managed a couple different farmers markets in Manhattan lower Manhattan and I had one in midtown Manhattan and that was for a couple years and so I did that senior year up until the end of graduation I'm excuse me up until I moved to South Carolina. And one of the things that I learned about while working at the program was the Farm Beginnings Program, which is a program that was for beginning farmers. It was a holistic farm planning course. They taught us about farm management and all of the sort of administrative aspects of starting a farm and planning for a a farm and a successful crop and planning for profit. 
And once I finished that program, I moved to South Carolina. So how did you find land that you could use? Because I know that's another barrier to entry. I Some families might have land that they've either, I don't know the right terminology, they've been grandfathered or something, or it's been passed down from generation to generation. But I also know, I mean, speaking of the history, especially of Black Americans in this country, they might have had land at one point, but it might have been either taken away. I feel like there is kind of a stigma as well. Um, my my dad is, is Black and my mom is Italian. And my dad, he's always like, you want to visit a farm and like learn about dying and, and sheep shearing? Like he, he doesn't understand. It, it's very kind of like a, a menial rudimentary thing to him. It's not it would never be a hobby. And I think, um, I don't know if there's, and people are different and they have different interests, but I feel like it's, it's deeper than that. I feel like there is a, a real desire among a lot of people of color to really distance from that kind of lifestyle because it's so steeped in so much pain and atrocity. And it was for so long that I think those wounds are, are kind of cemented even in someone's preferences, I would say. I still don't have the right terminology for it because me personally, I don't agree with my dad's distaste for being outside. <laughs> but um, I think there's something to that as well. That was a very long tangent to get back to how you ended up back on the land. But I, I feel like we started talking about that a little bit. And that's, <laughs> that's part of it, too. I wanted to circle back. But... Uh, there's a question and a statement in there and you can kind of decide where to, where to take those. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of relates to me being curious and just allowing the journey to take me. <laughs> so I, I kind of grew up in a circle of women who really leaned on each other. And my very, very early years, I grew up uh, around a lot of other black kids and we were in this kind of afrocentric circle and it was really beautiful and it's it's still very beautiful that's where nia comes from the nia my middle name and and all of these other things my very close my mom's very close family friend had a friend who she introduced to my mother who was talking about how she had a house and land that was handed down to her from her mother and she was living in dc at the time and the house was down in low country and she eventually wanted to move back to the land and she wanted to do some sort of a situation where she was growing things and um also kind of like creating this sort of holistic lifestyle type of a vibe I don't, I don't know how to really explain it she um herself was a healer she did reiki and, and all of these really beautiful practices um and we met and we connected and she was like yeah if you want to um come down um and see the land and and grow you can and i was so kind of burnt out and exhausted going from graduation and working this full-time job and 
continuing on with this job that was adjacent to what I wanted to do, but wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Also, New York City is just a really, really hard city, you know, barely taking care of my mental health and my physical health, like just really kind of surviving on the desire to make this dream come true. And here was this woman who had this amazing opportunity and I was just like, I'm ready I didn't go see the house. I didn't go see the land. She showed me some pictures. And I was like, this is it. And, you know, looking back at it, I probably should have done things a little differently. But, you know, you have the naivety is what makes things happen. Because I truly believe anything is possible. It might not look exactly how you imagined it in your head, but I truly believe that with time and like energy and effort, you can make anything happen. And I just understood that this was just a step that was a necessary step regardless of how it turned out. And for the most part, it was a really great step and a good opportunity and a moment that I needed because I think aside from just my farming journey, I needed stillness and I needed quiet and I needed to heal. Like I went from Harlem, you know, New York City, all of these experiences that I had to a tiny town off of, uh, uh, um, off of, you know, kind of off the road in this community of people who are just living. And mm-hmm. although I wasn't related to them, they felt like family. To this day, they feel like family. You know, I love my neighbors. I call um, my neighbor uncle. You know, I call mm-hmm. Uncle Ronald. And he was so helpful. And so, yeah, that that's kind of how that happened. And it just turned out that it wasn't the best situation for what I wanted to do. For a series of reasons. It's just kind of how things go. But it was an amazing moment. And an amazing opportunity. And I'm so grateful to have it. And grateful for the space that I had to learn and to grow. And I know you have more questions. So I'll let you like kind of ask what you're still curious about within (laughs) that whole. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know um, you're now going to be still in South Carolina, but in Charleston, I think you had said John's Island. Is that right? Yes. So Um, are you able to collect some of what you are growing in low country and bring it to where you're going to be? And what is this kind of second iteration of this land going to look like, or this land journey, (laughs) second iteration of this land journey going to look like? Yeah. So the first journey, um, was smaller so it was about an acre's worth of land but I wasn't growing on all of it and you can see pictures I believe in episode 27 which is when I did the part two when I showed pictures of what I was growing I (laughs) I was definitely ambitious in the amount of things that I was growing Um, I also at the time had more free time so I was able to be more hands-on in the beginning. But um, I was growing birdhouse gourds and loofah gourds. I planted like 
four types of watermelons, which is a huge mistake. Don't ever do that. <laughs> if anyone ever wants to do it. And it was in one row, too. And the watermelons just took over the whole plot. Like, just, like, they grew and grew. And I only ended up being able to harvest, like, three good watermelons. Oh, no. And it was a huge, it was, it was, it was a mess. And so I think halfway through, because they were encroaching on the space so much, I ended up just having to pull them up. Um, but I grow a I grew, excuse me, I grew Acadian brown cotton and Sea Island brown cotton. I also grew green cotton from Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, so the green cotton from Oaxaca, Mexico and the Acadian brown cotton were all gifted to me from Sharon Donnan, who was also on the podcast. And um, I got the Sea Island brown cotton and I believe green, the other variety of green, which was Gossipium hirsutum. It's like a hand spinners cotton from um, Southern Seed Exposure. And also grew like blue pea flowers. And then, of course, indigo ferrosifidicosa, which was in a separate plot um, and like more cost, a more concentrated amount. There's a lot of plants. I, I didn't even count how many plants it was because I broadcasted the seeds. Um, but it was a lot of indigo. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And so in that learning, I've taken that experience and put it into scaling up. So now I have I have access really to like, I don't know, maybe... 10 or 15 acres but I'm starting with one because I am one person <laughs> and <laughs> it's on John's Island and the field is tended to by Joseph Mr. Joseph Fields who is a very well-known black organic farmer or organic black farmer I don't know how to say that but it's important that people know that he's a black farmer and his farm is organic it's on John's Island. Anyone who knows the Charleston area knows that John's Island is where farms are and some of the best produce from the state or from Charleston comes from a lot of beautiful farms. And John's Island is also just a beautiful island in general. That's amazing. And wow, so that's 10 times or even more than 10 times the space that you had previously. So you're starting with one and each year, are you going to expand a little further or even within a single growing season, would you be able to kind of add to your one acre if time and space and energy <laughs> and the weather and everything else allow for that expansion? I'm hoping to, but I think one of the things that I learned, even in my smaller, more experimental phase Size really doesn't matter as much as concentration and use of space does. So, and that's also something I learned. And that could be like the New York City urban gardening experience in me. Like, you know, I was, you know, working at community gardens and things like that. Did a lot of, know a lot, I know a lot of Northern farmers and I'm very familiar with that type of farming. It's, it's different down South because there's more space. And so I think because people have more space, they use it. But even if you look at the farms on John's Island, um, the actual growth space is, all, is no more than like 10 to 15 acres, which is 
a lot to maybe like a northern farmer, but to a southern farmer, you know, farmers have hundreds and hundreds of acres. But the farms that I saw that were really successful grew on maybe one and two acres. They just had a really, really, they really optimized their growth space and optimized their personal, like, um, how do you say, personal efforts. And there are a lot of things that make growing on a smaller scale good for a type of production because for one less employees so you can focus on building a team and a good team you could pay people better you it's also you know inherently more sustainable because you you're not you know cutting down more trees tilling more land um and it's easier to to keep things in check. It's easier to keep control. You know, if you see something break out, you know, like a fungus or you start seeing a bug or something on an acre, that's way more manageable than something that's going to spread through 10 to 15 acres. And so I'm kind of just going to see how this season goes and then decide from there. I think at best I would grow to maybe five acres but I don't anticipate I would need that much, it, like much more than that for what I'm interested in producing. I mean, one of the things that's great about indigo is that you harvest it, you extract it, you dry it, and then you have a pigment that lasts for a very long time under the appropriate conditions. And, you know, potential there there's potential to be the same for brown cotton because it is and I know this from my personal experience it is to a degree very pest and mildew resistant I mean I haven't uh, you know the cotton that I've harvested I just have it and it uh, have had it for years at this point um, I think the oldest cotton I have is maybe three or four years old that I grew and it's fine you know and I'm not storing it in a storage container with low moisture, it's just in bags and containers, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, there's there's you know a lot of potential uh, there for that, but that's actually a perfect segue into another question I had, which it's kind of a deep cut. I think it was in your first conversation with Sarah, which I listened back to both of them before this interview, obviously, but you had this idea of this either seed to fabric or seed to cone kind of brainstorming you were doing where people would be able to buy what you had grown and it wouldn't just be for personal use. So I selfishly am very curious about that because I would love to buy <laughs> cotton in any of its forms from you. But are, are there plans to do that in the near future or the distant future? coming up yes so right now i guess i can share my goals with you all for <laughs> for 2022 and 2023 what i'm thinking of doing now is doing a line of indigo dyed yarn i haven't oh decided <laughs> <laughs> i know right I'm, so saying exciting. This, I'm saying this on we podcast you're to gonna be flooded a bunch of yarn with... influencers yes. and <laughs> yarn enthusiasts yes um that's the goal and wow. and i've done the numbers and i've kind of figured out how it'll be possible 
it will be indigo dyed yarn, not yarn that I have made from my cotton. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but um, I would like to most likely purchase uh, one of the in-house yarns from Gist and then uh, hand dye it with indigo and kind of start that way as a value-added product to help me to afford to expand and to hire employees and to, you know, begin to get into the steps of getting to the point where I can then go to a mill and say, hi, I have this amount of cotton that I would like to process into yarn or um, you know, like there, there's so many steps into getting there. And so I realized that this is a very, very long process, process that has very many iterations. And the short term goal is to start with indigo dyeing. Um, I do want to have my own line of goods, but I'm also not rushing it because I want it to be correct you know like I want it to feel good I want it to be good and I want it to be as close to my you know personal morals and goals for what I want garment production to look like and so it it's it just takes a lot of time and uh, a lot of learning so I think I think that's great I also I feel like um kind of taking things slower too i with my own personal projects this happens also the slower i go the the more i kind of shift as part of that process or things will become apparent to me that i didn't foresee happening or didn't even know about when i started so i feel like um I do this with the job search. I do this with where I'm living. It's like I have a sort of loose structure of things, but it's malleable. I think that is a great way to start really any process because you don't know everything ever going into a new project. So that kind of ability for other things to seep in and influence as you're going, I think is, is great. And it's, I think, more manageable because you're not starting with, you know, the 100 things you have to do and they're set in stone <laughs> that I feel like people just burn out if they try to do that. It's not a sustainable practice. So, yeah. So right now I'm like pretty much in the farming phase. And once once I get this season under my belt, next year the goal is to rent a studio and have some form of like, studio atelier type of situation where that's where I can process and that's where I can showcase and have people visit and like see the things that I'm working on and like uh, also again hopefully hire some people because I do need help um <laughs> but that is the sort of short term and most immediate goal that I have and and it is a version of that early idea or that early goal. It's just a much more realistic version of it, I would say. Yeah. I mean, you also, I think you had recorded that podcast, I don't know how many years ago now, four or five. So it, a lot has happened <laughs> since then too. So, yeah. 
I am curious also to go back to the farm in Charleston. How did that relationship with Joseph Fields develop? How did he come into your sort of awareness or was there someone that knew him who knew the two of you and kind of connected you that way? Yeah, so pretty much all of 20, let me see, it's 2022. So pretty much all of 2021, I was in land search because I moved all of my things out of uh, Ridgeland, uh, excuse me, not Ridgeland, out of Pineland 2021, like February. And so all of that year, I was just kind of in a like, weird space where I was like maybe I just want to go to Northern California like you know like really like this is a time to really uproot if I'm ever going to uproot and like find somewhere where I can stay for a, a long period of time and in 2021 so last year was when I also applied for the Braiding Seeds Fellowship which is a fellowship specifically for farmers of color, black farmers, indigenous farmers. And I, you know, luckily was selected and it's been an amazing opportunity. Um, it's hosted by Soul Fire Farm, if if anyone knows um, about Soul Fire Farm, but they're an amazing farm that is in upstate New York. And the founder or the co-founder, Lee, Peniman. Um, Lee Peniman wrote a book called Farming While Black, which is also a great book to read. And it's also been really helpful to me in this journey. And through the contacts and being connected with the fellowship, I was able to see a lot of different plots of land owned by by um, black farmers and also people who had land handed down to them. And I wasn't really finding anything that was exactly right. And I reached out to someone who I would consider to be one of my farm mentors, farmer mentors. Her name is Benita Clemens. I, I believe I've mentioned her on the podcast before, um, but she's really just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And she went, called a couple people, and she found Mr. Fields, and she talked to him for me, and I went out to go see and, and meet him, I think, in January of this year, and he was like, I mean, I don't fully understand what you want to do, but you can have it. It's yours. Wow. <laughs> so um, I'm renting the land from him. And, um, it's, he's been really helpful. He has a tractor and things like that, which is huge for scaling up because it is, you know, a lot of acreage. And so he's run the tractor for me. That's kind of how that happens. And what is he growing? And does he have a team of people as well that can help you? Or are you sort of taking this one acre on, on your own? For now, at least. Um, I'm pretty, I'm taking it on on my own. Um, I think that if I needed help, I could ask, but I think I'll be okay. I know anytime I tell people I'm doing an acre by myself, they're, they kind of gasp a little. They're like, <laughs> what? How? And I'm like, 
And I'm not going to lie, this past week, I started to doubt myself quite a bit, you know, as I'm getting nervous. It's kind of like a farmer, farmer, like a seasonal farmer depression. <laughs> I don't know. Like how the beginning it. of the growing season, though? And yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like you, it's like at the beginning and then usually around harvest, it's, those are the most stressful moments. And advice that I've gotten from other farmers is they say, don't make any harsh decisions during those times. And my, um, Sarah, who is my, who is my, um, the, one of the co-managers for my fellowship, she was telling me, she was like, um, trust your winter self. Your winter mm-hmm. self said plant after April 15th. Don't rush plant after April 15th. Mm-hmm. And because I'm looking at the weather and I'm just like, it's just not hot enough. Like it needs to be hotter because indigo, it, it's very kind of temperamental. Like to get germination is really difficult if you don't have the perfect or the right, I shouldn't say perfect, if you don't have the right environment and I learned that in my first season because I planted three times before I got germination and I didn't see germination until like May like I didn't start to see anything come up and when it did come up it was it was amazing it was beautiful and it just took off it was like once once indigo once indigo ferris was really close uh, establishes itself it doesn't need much it it doesn't even really need as much water once it's established so i'm curious too um to be fair i have family that is in upstate new york but they have my aunt actually does have a few acres but she's not really growing on it she has like some some berry bushes you know she has some turkeys it's not at all the scale that you will be on but i do know from some of her neighbors they'll have greenhouses so they can start planting quote unquote even though they're not actually like the crops aren't in the ground and then they'll move everything once it's warm enough for things to actually be in the you know their permanent home in the soil but I know that's a lot of labor as well. I don't know if, is that something you've done or have access to, or is that just the the kind of return on that human investment isn't worth moving everything around? Yeah, and that's what I've come to see it as as well. I'm, I personally just prefer a direct sow, especially because of the area I'm in. I believe this is like zone eight. 8b or something like that and so for me it's not so cold that it's necessary for this particular crop to greenhouse it whereas if i was growing something else i would definitely greenhouse it mr fields has greenhouses and he grows lots of salad greens strawberries tomatoes things like that and so he 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 greenhouses uh but personally for me excuse me, what I've learned is that transplant shock of plants, these plants specifically, the amount of time it takes for them to adjust to going from a tray to the soil is about the time I'm kind of pushing it off to plant direct sow. So it doesn't really yield that much of a difference for me. 
and it depends on the plant though so this this particular yeah so specifically for me yeah for me uh, for indigo and for the cotton it's it's not really in my experience it hasn't been something that seems beneficial and then for the cotton once it establishes itself once the bowl develops and a frost comes the frost will come and the leaves will die and the plant will die like it'll start to dry out but the bowl will still be there it'll be fine um you can leave cotton on a field over a winter you just have to be mindful of the, the weather around so if it's too humid and too wet and it does get hot for some reason in the winter then the seeds in the bowl could start to germinate and then you'll have little cotton plants growing out of your little cotton plants <laughs> but that's highly unlikely if if the frost comes and it's winter so as long as you keep it dry and then down here there's no snow you have that time to let to to allow the plant to you know kind of hang out for a little bit. Yeah, I love these segues because speaking of hibernation <laughs> and winter, um, the Weave podcast in this iteration is kind of coming to an end, as far as I understand it. So I'm curious about: is this a hibernation? Will it come back, <laughs> or will it uh, turn into the conversations you're having with the residents since the residency launched this year? Can you speak to that a little bit too? There's potential. Um, I can't say for sure exactly what the podcast will turn into or if um, there will be another iteration where episodes will come out as frequently as they used to. I think, you know, Sarah kind of had her moment with the podcast where she stepped back a little bit and then I was the main host doing a lot of episodes. And then I think I kind of got to that same space that Sarah got to um, when she got to that phase and it's more so wanting to make sure that we are putting out quality content and having, you know, good guests. You know, the, the podcast has a lot of episodes and we talk to a lot of people and there might be some people that people think like, oh, why haven't they talked to this person or they should reach out to this person. But I'm pretty sure I've reached out to almost everyone in the fiber community <laughs> and if they weren't on the podcast it could be that I just have a personal relationship with them that developed and they just weren't interested in, in being recorded or they didn't answer or they were busy or you know life happens and so it kind of became something where I think we both think it's best to kind of let it exist and then if it resurrects it resurrects but time will tell and i'm really excited about the artist and residency program and so far i think one person has chosen to do an episode and so some of them are going to do an episode and some of them won't but we will have things to post in the feed over time it'll just be kind of sporadic and i know that might not be you know, that might not satisfy a lot of people, but, you know, we're doing our best and just has grown a lot over the past couple of years. So um, who knows? 
Well, I think that's great. It's great to hear that it will continue in some form. And I feel like, especially with the rate of production on social media these days, I, I really treasure people that do kind of post things more sporadically (laughs) and it's more intentional and it's not just the algorithm demands we must post every day at this time. I feel like a more organic approach to that is lovely. That's a great thing to do. Um, And where can people follow along with your farm journey, either on a blog or Instagram? Are you going to be kind of creating an archive of sorts of your time on John's Island? Yes. So I know that this is probably going to be disappointing to some people, but I do not intend to make an Instagram (laughs) 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 or um, like do any heavy social media. I tried to do an Instagram, I think a few years ago. Some of you may have seen it. It's just a lot for me and it doesn't fully align with my personality and kind of takes me out of the moment quite a bit and I just have opted out of the social media life I do want to share my progress and that's something I'm figuring out how to do on another platform so I am photographing taking pictures they're more so documentation uh pictures because this is to a degree of farm experiment or science experiment. And I do intend to share all of my findings with people. I just haven't found the platform where I feel comfortable and excited to share on. But you can always email me, lashawn at gisyarn.com. And yeah. Well, this has been incredible. I'm so... It honestly was great, speaking of archives, to go back and really trace the origin story of your origin story, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and I think it's it's amazing that you've really given this project or projects time and space to grow, and you keep coming back to them in different ways. And it's really inspiring, honestly. I, I'm so, I know we met technically on Instagram, but I'm glad <laughs> I caught you while you were there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really appreciative we've been able to take our conversations out of the social media space. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. And thank you so much for making this such an easy, easeful conversation. I appreciate your efforts and your presence. And, you know, just it's it's been great. I agree. That's a wrap. If you're interested in seeing some of my current farm images or to find links to connect with Michelle, you can visit the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 144. On our next episode, which will be posted in three weeks, I will be speaking with Cassiana. Cassiana is one of Just's fiber artists in residence of 2022 and I'm excited to share our conversation about her Weaving Skies project, which is an outdoor weaving exploration that combines Cassiana's love of nature and textiles to explore sustainability, community, and weaving. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. Stay tuned for that episode. Until next time, happy weaving. <laughs>